So hello and today welcome to another of my dental business transaction podcasts and I'm going to be talking to a man who needs no introduction but I'm going to give him one anyway. Uh, It is the man, the myth and the legend that is Chris Barrow, founder of the Extreme Business Academy and for those of you that don't know it's it's a revolutionary online platform for business owners, managers and, and teams. Good morning Chris. Morning, how are you? I'm very well thank you. I think we're both armed with strong coffees aren't we? Uh, yeah, and you know, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you, Lily. I, I uh, as you know, I'm normally on the other end of this, and uh, I've spent a lot of time interviewing other people. So to be actually sat on the couch rather than yeah. sat in Graham Norton's chair, it's a really nice uh, change. So thank you. That's good. I've got the handle ready for you, though, Chris. Yeah? <laughs> Any jip and you're out. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Now, I think, first of all, Obviously, we see a lot about you uh, in the social media and the articles and the newsletters you write and, of course, your workshops on the road. Um, but let's talk about you, your, your personal hobbies and your leisure time, because I know you're a, a super active person. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Oh, my word. Um, well, from an exercise point of view, um, I, I think there's an interesting background to this, which is that I was absolutely rubbish uh, any form of sport when I was at school. Um, I was one of those kids uh, where if you threw any ball at them, whether it was football, rugby, or even a tennis ball, basically it just kind of hit the side of my body and fell on the floor and I stood there looking at it. And in fact, you'll recall that kind of um, legendary scene where they're picking sides for a football team and everybody's lined up against the wall. And I was always the last one And whoever got to pick me used to go, oh, Barrow, come on. And so um, I actually got to the stage where when I started at secondary school, I was very, very fortunate back in the 1960s to win uh, what you would now describe as a working class scholarship to go to a grammar school. And uh, I was one of the only kids on our street that got the chance of doing that. And I suddenly walked into this grammar school environment that was heavily sport focused, football and cricket and tennis and lacrosse, I remember. And I was just hopeless. So I actually got my mum to write me a sick note every week so that I could wag sports and I'd just go and sit and do my homework somewhere else in the school. So I emerged from the secondary education system. I was a 16-year-old school leaver with absolutely no physical talent whatsoever. And it was shortly after that, as I was a very junior 16, 17-year-old office boy working for an insurance company in central Manchester, somebody asked me whether I'd turn up and play five-a-side football. Um, I rather reluctantly did so. Uh, But I've always been blessed uh, by a fairly um, small uh, overall physical disposition. In other words, I'm a bit of a short arse. And so they put me in five-a-side goals and I found a passion. And uh, largely, first of all, because I was small enough. And secondly, because I was stupid enough to throw myself all over the place to try and stop this ball going in the net. I got quite good at it. And we used to play in a five-a-side football league in a place called Ardwick Green in Manchester. And the hall that we played in was actually a territorial army barracks. And the football was built on a concrete pitch. 
So by the time I was 21 years old, I was a very, very good five-a-side footballer with leather kneecaps because they'd been cut and, and bruised and ripped so many times that I'd grown about five layers of skin. And that was the start of it. And uh, I carried on as a five-a-side goalie for a while. Then I got into playing volleyball and I played uh, a team volleyball for, gosh, probably about 10, 15 years. Absolutely loved it. Um, and around about 1998, I was, uh, sorry, let me start again. Around about 1978, around about 1978, so I would have been about 25 years old, I decided I was going to give up smoking because I, like every working class lad up north, I've been smoking since sort of about 15 years old. I was smoking and, and a bit overweight. And a power mine at work said, why don't you try doing a bit of long distance running? So I thought, give it a go. First time I ran a mile and nearly died. Uh, but I just thought I'd keep going with it. And over time, uh, I really discovered the true passion, which was long distance running. And so I became a runner in 1978. Um, Sadly, I retired from running just a year ago uh, as a result of just an accumulation of injuries. But uh, ran my first marathon, London Marathon, I think it was 1977. And I managed to get uh, 35 marathons under my belt before the body gave in. Uh, I am currently and have happily transitioned into long distance cycling. You are, and I can see that because obviously I follow you and uh, I can see how busy you are. And as I said earlier, you know, you, you guilt shame me every morning because you're up so early in the morning and you achieve more than most people by nine o'clock. So well done. Um, obviously we've talked about your leisure time, but I know you're also a workaholic. Um, what drives you? What gives you the most pleasure, Chris, with your extreme business um, academy and your private coaching? Well, uh, the answer to that is is very, very easy. The, be the best day in my life professionally, one of two things. It, it would either be, primarily it would be an email from a client uh, to say thanks very much for everything that you've done for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that is my number one uh, best day at the office. And sometimes people write to me because they've just completed the sale of the business, which of course is why you and I know each other. Uh, some people write to me uh, because they've completed the purchase of a business, or some people write to me that because they've achieved whatever it is that they're trying to achieve in terms of their ongoing business career. And, uh, you know, we have a bit of a joke uh, that, that nobody ever contacts me because they're happy. Um, <laughs> uh, people call me because they've either had enough of one thing or they want some more of another thing. And they need somebody to act as a catalyst to help them to transition from where they are to where they want to be. And uh, dentistry, I'm, I'm 26 years in dentistry now, and, and it, it, it's been a complete and utter blessing uh, because pretty much every friend I've got uh, socially is one that has arisen through the job nowadays you know my I, I, I don't know my neighbors names but I've got friends literally all over the world mm. uh, through dentistry uh, so my best day is a thank you email or sometimes and, and not so often nowadays somebody coming up to you after a workshop or a trade show or whatever and just saying you know what I just want to say thank you 
Uh, I heard you speak five years ago. I, t- I took away a lot of what you said. I put it into practice. It's made a big difference. That's number one. I agree. Mm. N- number two, I think, and, I, and I'm going to be very, very transparent about this. Um, <clears throat> I'm an only child uh, of one alcoholic parent with mental health issues. And that meant that I spent a lot of my youth um, in an isolated situation. And so I I make no apologies for loving the applause of an audience. Uh, I make no apologies for loving the recognition of either an article or a blog post well-written, a podcast well-received, And that applause, if I can use that word as a metaphor for the appreciation that you get, that really is a driving force for me. I'm probably still trying to replace some of the parenting that I missed out on. Um, But if that's what drives you, that's what drives you. And, And I was very, very fortunate that back in the 90s, I went through a lot of personal coaching as a client. And I also went a lot of through a lot of what you now describe as counselling and therapy as a client, and it helped me to understand a lot about myself mm-hmm. and uh, realise that the reason I'm out there all over social media, all over speaking, all over writing, and as, as somebody once said, um, Chris Barrow will turn up at the opening of an envelope, um, it, it goes back to that initial lack of appreciation earlier mm-hmm. in my life, and probably the fact that I'm still trying to compensate for that all these mm-hmm. years later. Fortunately, I've been able to channel that into something that's become very productive and profitable. Chris, that was so honest of you. Thank you ever so much for for sharing that with me. And I mean that because I think that a lot of people are embarrassed to talk about issues such as you've you've touched upon there. And and I love some of your very small little bitey blogs that you do when you put them out. I think, what do do you call the series? The little mini ones that you put out each day or you had a a series of very short... Yeah, five a day thing that we did. Five a day. And they make so much sense. But one of the things we often talk to to clients about, or if I'm talking, for example, we're at a seminar, is we say, the first thing you've got to do is surround yourself with people you trust. Surround yourself with a team because everything in life can be very daunting, especially when you're looking to perhaps sell or buy a practice. If you surround yourself with people that will look after you, um, look out for you and give you advice that's honest and not driven for their own purpose and gain, that gives you so much confidence, doesn't it, in people? Because you're sharing the burden. And we talk to many clients that have issues such as you've touched upon there. And I think that having a business coach, the services that you give, does give people a lot of comfort, a lot of satisfaction. You're guiding them. You're a bit like a shepherd. You're, you're a border collie <laughs> in human form. I described that once at a seminar. I said to the audience, I said, what we do, what do we do? We're like a combination of a border collie moving you along, tucking you in the gate, shutting the gate. Oh, there's one out. We're like a fireman. We put out fires. We're like a a relationship counsellor. We do all of these things. And then it left them with quite a vision. But that's what you do as well. Um, So, okay, let's talk about what drives you crazy. What drives you crazy when you meet clients, perhaps, or you see situations arising? Oh, my word. Um, Again, I'm I'm going to be predictably authentic about this. Um, One thing that drives me crazy is uh, um, unwanted interruptions. Um, And uh, because I am fortunate enough to be very focused and very self-disciplined, 
And so I will zone my diary and there'll be certain times of the day when I'm doing certain things. By the way, I'm probably the easiest person in the world to kidnap because my life is a series of extraordinarily predictable routines, both personally and professionally. You know, you've said it yourself. I, I get up at the same time every day. During the week, I do the same things at the same time every morning. I have a certain structure to my day, uh, which is extraordinarily well established. And, I, and I, I'll probably not, I'll have to not make any apology for saying that I allow that structure to, uh, to command a great deal of my personal life as well. I remember a client once saying to me, um, do you ever do anything spontaneously? And uh, my reply was yes for one hour at three o'clock every Saturday, and and it took the client a while uh, to figure out the joke. But but uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, we've been on holiday to the same location for the last I think it's fifteen years now, and uh, we found a place, we fell in love with it. Uh, we go back there every year. We've never bought, it's in Greece. We've never bought a home over there because we don't want that degree of commitment. But the same two weeks in July, we go to the same place in Greece and we stay in the same place uh, every time. And actually in the 14 days that we're there, we have a pretty rigid routine in terms of what it is that we do on what day. Now, of course, there are some people listening to this will say, that will say this is the most boring guy in the world. But actually... It's the predictable. It, 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 I'm not boring. I'm simply predictable. But one of the things that I'll plan is I'll plan my adventures. So I, I somebody asked me um, at a, a seminar a few years ago, what's the best business decision you ever made in your life? And uh, my answer then and now is, is back in 1996, when I was a father co-parenting five young children and, and a, a workaholic. And I made a decision that I was going to take 12 weeks vacation every week, for the, every, every year, for the rest of my life. And in 1996, as a self-employed consultant, I put those 12 weeks in and I thought, sod it, if the business goes down, I'll get a job as a postman, I'll do something else. Because it isn't worth it for 49 weeks a year. It's only worth it for 40 weeks a year. And my kids now, who are all adults, they've all grown up and left the nest. But they will tell you that one of the greatest memories that they've got of their childhood is the amazing things that we used to do during those vacation weeks, some of which were overseas when the budget allowed it, some of which were at home in, in, the, U, in the UK if the budget was a bit tight, and some of which we spent at home when we were broke. Uh, yeah. But we had quality time together. And when you're, a, when you're a workaholic who travels for a living, my work pre-COVID was about being on the road, visiting dental practices, delivering workshops, attending seminars and conferences. I didn't go to parent-teacher evenings. I didn't go to the Christmas panto. I didn't go to the sports day because I was away. And so I made sure that those 12 weeks I was there and we had quality family time. And that, that then and now was a great decision. So I organised my personal time as rigorously as I organize my uh, professional time as well. And I set myself targets. I set myself a target to read 30 good quality non-business books every single year. And I always hit that target. I set myself a target of cycling. Nowadays, I want to cycle 5,000 kilometers in a year and I'll hit that target. When I was a runner, it was a different distance target. So I'm constantly, constantly setting goals, setting targets. 
And I'll even set myself a target to say I'm watching a box set on television and I'm going to get to the end of that box set by the end of the month. I love working in that environment because it keeps me motivated. But there's plenty of variety, perhaps not a great deal of spontaneity. Yep. And I've got to ask you the question before we move on to the next subject is what happens if you don't make those targets? Because life has a habit of getting in the way, Chris. Do you get agitated or do you just put in more hours to achieve that target? Tick that box. No, I'll drop it. I'll, I'll walk away from it. There was a year back in, um, oh God, it was the early 2000s uh, where we were involved in an enormous house move. We actually went to live overseas for a period of and uh, it became a very complex and complicated situation. And as a result of that, it was absolutely impossible to meet the target on vacations. Let it go. Uh, COVID came along and mm. I took all my tickets for 2020 and I just ran them through the shredder in the corner of the office. Because just <laughs> like everybody else, you yeah. know, um, notwithstanding the tragedy of, of, of the coronavirus, the reality mm. is that every single one of us had our routines thrown in the Absolutely. shredder. Didn't we? Isn't it great to get back to normal now? It, I'm loving it. And, uh, and, and 2020 was, was what I describe as the ultimate Zen experience because you lived it one day at a time. You had to be present in the moment. Mm. So all of my targeting, I, 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 I do 90-day targets every quarter day. I spend yeah. a lot of time on it, marginal gains, marginal gains, David Brailsford territory. And all the quarterly goal setting in 2020 went in the bin. Yeah. And I just said, okay, I'm going to turn up every day like everybody else and I'm going to see where it goes. But of course, now, you know, here we are in October 2021, there is a degree of normality beginning to creep back into the landscape. And so I'm now putting those targets back in place, but with some refinements because one of the interesting things about the pandemic is that there, there are some things that we're going to leave behind in 2020 and say, you know, I was doing things before COVID-19 that might have been damaging me. They might have been things that I didn't enjoy. And I'm not taking them into 2022. I'm going to leave them behind. Yep. I'm sure. Wait, bye bye. It's quite liberating, isn't it? We've been doing, we had business coaching as well in the start of, of COVID and it was the best thing we ever did. It was like the ultimate sort of safety net swinging below us. You know, we, we follow the EOS operating system and it's having those targets, having some kind of structure. And we do, you know, um, we have our 90 day, we have our quarterly meetings and we all set ourselves rocks, goals to achieve. And it does give you that drive when you know that you've set them and you have to achieve them. And if you don't, then obviously there's that feeling of, hang on a minute, it's what's important. It's prioritising, isn't it? What's important? And it does help you. It goes back to what I was saying about having a team around you and having business coaching put us in, I would honestly say, hand on heart, the best position our company's ever been in. We've come through it stronger and better with a real understanding and goodness me we had enough time to sit down and dig into it dig deep in that time but it's really good and having that uh, you know surrounding ourselves with that expert knowledge we now know we've, we all learn as well you learn from mistakes you don't look back you always look ahead and look forward but you just don't make those mistakes again um, now I'm going to ask you Chris top 10 predictions for 2022 I, I, I'm like you Lily I get I get a chance to metaphorically sit in a hot air balloon that floats about 30,000 feet above dentistry and we get to look down uh, and we're not wrestling with the day-to-day -day requirements of delivering dentistry mm -hmm. to patients. 
maps and that just horrendous landscape that a lot of our clients are operating in. So from the perspective of that metaphoric hot air balloon, you can look down at the industry, at the landscape, and try and spot trends. So I, I, I don't want to say predictions because I, I think that's a bit black and white, but I want to talk about trends, things that I'm seeing as trending. And uh, I'm, I'm going to do it a bit like Tony Blackburn reading out the hit parade. Uh, I'm going to give you number 10 first of all. We'll reverse back to number one, all right? Okay. So my my number 10 trend, 10, 10th in the hit parade, um, is, is what I'm going to loosely describe as, as corporate culture, uh, and in particular, culture and confidence. So what do I mean by that? And, and I am going to have to um, mention here my very, very close friend, Mark Topley, who formerly was chief executive of Bridge to Aid, the dental charity. Now Mark is a freelance advisor on um, corporate social responsibility and on leadership. And, and he's extraordinarily talented in that respect. And by the way, you should get him on for one of your uh, interviews. Um, but one of the things I've learned from Mark is that where we are right now, you know this as well as I do, is that we're in the middle of a recruitment and attention crisis. People are not responding to recruitment adverts and people are leaving jobs and they are leaving dentistry. And, uh, and it's causing a major crisis right now, both in terms of clinical and non-clinical support staff. It's the number one topic of daily conversation around my client base. Where do I find ideal team players and how do I keep the ideal team players that I've got. And my response to that is that every survey that's ever been done about the reason that people take a job and stay with a job um, has got four essential components and money isn't number one. Uh, number one is appreciation, that people feel genuinely appreciated uh, for what it is that they're doing, that through the work that they do, they are moving themselves up Maslow's hierarchy of needs because they feel that what they do is purposeful. They feel that what they do makes a positive difference in society. And whether you're on front of house, whether you're in dental nursing, whether you're in management or clinical, the reality is that the, the ideal team players need to have a sense of purpose around the work that they do. That's number one. Number two is that they need, they need to see that there is a career pathway ahead of them if they want one, that if I take further qualifications, if I do further training, I can work my way up a ladder of progress, which will make me better at the job and which will lead me to number three. And number three is compensation. I want to feel well paid for what I do. What, but I, I want to feel that I'm well paid for what I do. And I want to feel that, again, I can progress in that pay through my own efforts. And then finally, number four is fun. And what I mean by that is that I work in an organisation where it's, it's okay to have a sense of humour, where we have a laugh, even though we deal with serious issues on a day-to-day -day basis. So appreciation, progress, money and fun. So my number 10 on my hit parade is the requirement to build a business in which all of those uh, uh, attributes exist. And like I say, I defer to my friend Mark Topley and some of the work that he's doing on the, at the moment on how to be a great leader and how to be a great boss. Let's look at number nine. 
Uh, and I'll try and do these more quickly because otherwise we'll be here all day. Uh, but number nine, I believe that we're going to see more and more salaried associates. And I think that as people are coming out of foundation training <clears throat> and as the career opportunities that are available to them within the dental landscape are becoming more and more restricted, um, I believe that the savvy independent practitioner can recruit salaried dentists two, two years out of foundation training <clears throat> and can offer them four days a week of delivering preventative maintenance in their own surgery and a day a week shadowing the principal so that they can see the principal's clinical skills, but they can also hear the principal's language skills with the patients. Moving on from that, number eight is what I describe as the self-managed business. And what I mean by that is that instead of principals and their spouses running around with their air on fire 90 hours a week, what they're actually doing is that they're building a management team around themselves who can run the business when they are not there. Yep. And my ultimate example of that was a client that I used to deal with many years ago, now has long since sold to a corporate and retired. But I remember that client nearly 20 years ago telling me that on the 1st of January every year, he and his wife went to their skiing lodge in France and they stayed there until the 31st of March. They spent three months skiing every year and they then came back to their practice early April in order to work for the rest of the year. And it was still there. And it was still there because they had both a management and a clinical team that were able to run the business uh, in their absence. Why wouldn't you want that to be the case? And so I see that being a trend. Number seven, leading on from that, is that I'm also working with principals who want to spend less and less time delivering clinical dentistry and more and more time working on the business as opposed to working in the business. So that leads to the concept of a principal retiring from clinical dentistry and building an associate-led business. And I'm, I'm doing a lot of work with my clients on that in order to reduce their impact, the, 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 the impact of their production. Because again, as you know, uh, the more of the gross turnover generated by the principal, okay. the less the goodwill value of the practice should they want to sell. So it's in their own interest to get maximum exit value for the practice to reduce their own clinical production, which leads us on to number six. So number six is my um, support and encouragement for the rise and rise and rise of the skilled dental therapists. Uh, I believe that it's a, an extraordinary shame that following the introduction of direct access, I see so many dental therapists that are being de-skilled uh, because they're being pushed in a corner to do hygiene only. When in fact, if therapists were allowed to fulfill their full scope of practice as, um, as defined by the GDC, they could play a much more significant and important role within the development of the practice as a whole. So I've just been through salaried associates, self-managed businesses, associate-driven businesses, and therapy-led businesses as well. Let's drop down to number five. Number five is financial control. Every single Champions League practice that I've ever worked with has had fantastic control of their finances. They know the numbers inside out. They know the key performance indicators. They know their operating cost per surgery per day. They know the productivity and the profitability 
of every single fee earner in the business. And when you know your numbers to that degree, then you're able to navigate the ship very, very accurately in order to make the journey as efficient as possible. Number four, internal human interest marketing. Don't get me started on this because I'll go on all night, but I spend an inordinate amount of my time telling my clients that the single biggest marketing asset that they have in their business is their existing patient database. Because that existing patient database, number one, can buy more things, number two, can write reviews, and number three, can refer them to their family, friends, and colleagues, either through word of mouth or through digital recommendation. And it breaks my heart when I see practices throwing thousands and thousands of pounds a month a year at Google and Facebook advertising in order to try and attract price shopping strangers into their business when all they need to do is to actually uh, connect with the existing patients that they've got. The exception to the rule, of course, is the new squat practice who've got no customers. They do have to talk to strangers. There's a way of doing that, which is far, uh, far more efficient than throwing money at the wall. But time and time again, I find practices that are sitting on an asset of 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 patients that they're not enrolling as their unpaid sales force. Three left. Number three, the digital patient journey. COVID-19, for all of the distress associated with it, has accelerated the digital patient journey by an order of magnitude. And so if we'd have been having this conversation even two, two and a half years ago, if I'd have been talking about video consultations to triage new patient inquiries, if I'd have been talking about the effective use of scanning, if I'd have been talking about PowerPoint and keynote treatment plans, and if I'd have been talking about video voiceover treatment plans, uh, you'd have thought I was talking rubbish. And yet these things are now embedded in the patient journey in many practices, and we're not going back. These things now have become the future. Number two, uh, I am the self-appointed president of the Treatment Coordinator Fan Club. I think that TCO, I don't think, I know that TCOs deployed effectively in practice will increase the productivity of the fee earners by 30% without doing anything else. And I believe, again, that one of the characteristics of Champions League practices is that they've got treatment coordinators doing the job properly, as is trained by other people out there. I don't train TCOs, but there are people like Laura Horton and others who do a fantastic job of it. And if I was a dentist, I would have a TCO alongside me every single time. Which brings me to the number one, one. The number one trending category in dentistry. And that is very simply the effective use of the interaural scanner in the patient journey. Now, I'm not going to advocate one scanner over another. I am neither qualified uh, nor competent uh, to make that kind of product recommendation. But what I am saying is this, is that those dentists who are embracing the use of the intraoral scanner as part of their overall communication with patients are experiencing a revolutionary change in the patient's level of involvement in their own dental health and in their own dental appearance. And we're not just talking about intraoral scanners for clear aligners. We're talking about intraoral scanners for every conceivable treatment modality mm -hmm. right through to implant and full arch dentistry. Yeah. And uh, one of the great 
privileges that I've had over the last 12 months is that I've been hosting a series of uh, European webinars uh, from Align Technology, which have been about my Tiro, but I've seen some of the best dentists in Europe and from around the world talking about how they use intraoral scanning as part of their overall patient journey. It's been a revolution. And the mantra that I have with my clients is very simple, scan every patient, every visit, simple as. And if you start doing that, and if you make the time to do that, your business will explode. So there's your hit parade. You've given some really good bullet points there for people. And some people will resonate with some of them, some of them, all of them. But that's an excellent run through of your, your recommendations, your predictions and your gut feel for 2022. Thanks ever so much for your time today. It's been really lovely to talk to you. Lots of fun. Um, I wish you all the very best. Keep up the, your incredible energy, your passion. And um, I wish you all the very best. And if I don't see you before, have a, I'm going to wish you a happy Christmas. Now, it's a bit early for that, isn't it? Oh, my God. Uh, well, it's too so, early for that. We won't do that. Uh, so we, we saw our first Christmas tree in somebody's living room last week. And uh, I, have a, I have a personal tradition, actually, which is that every year, uh, whichever of our local supermarkets is the first one to put the Christmas decorations up, I always go to the store manager and ask him to direct me to the Easter eggs. Um, I just love doing it. <laughs> I bet they love you. <laughs> I, I saw some mince pies in my local supermarket and I just tutted. I was feeling a bit like a miserable old Grinch, you know. Here we go. Chris, it's lovely to talk to you. All the very best. Thanks for your time. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the new year. We'll see how your predictions are coming along. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you, Chris. Bye.